You're listening to Accounted For, the Canadian podcast that explores the intangibles of every career. I'm your host, Daniel Lee. Happy Wednesday, ladies and gents. This podcast is brought to you by my company, OMD Ventures. It's my platform focused on everything human capital investing. And if you don't know what that means, then that's a great reason to go check it out. I have links to the newsletter that you can subscribe to, as well as just the general company site uh, down below in the descriptions. Not to mention the link to my vlog that I've recently started. I'm still new at it, but if you are curious about what I'm doing and what really goes on in my, I guess, relatively boring <laughs> week, definitely look into tune in and follow along on the journey. I've also attached a link to my listener survey and so if you are a true fan or if you want to be a true fan that really wants to contribute something else you can do on top of leaving a nice five-star review on itunes is to go fill out the listener survey to constantly give me feedback on how i can improve or you know things you like about the podcast etc and so yeah that's practically it and so for today our guest is larry lau the founder of 88 Ventures. 88 Ventures is a venture studio in Toronto and London, Ontario that helps entrepreneurs build digital products with the help of an in-house development team. Larry described it pretty well when he told me that it's practically like a CTO that's a whole studio on its own for entrepreneurs who may need help with creating their products um, into something even better than what they currently have in their, I guess, MVP level. Though he runs a venture studio um, that develops technical products, Larry really started out as an entrepreneur in digital marketing. His foray in, in entrepreneurship began with building a globally ranked top uh, Pokemon community site that later got acquired by IGN. Yet he didn't really pursue his next venture till much later after graduating and nearly even getting kicked out of university that we kind of talk about uh, deeper in the podcast because he had this medical science dream. Um, and he decided to leave that on the past and start a marketing agency. And then after that, he's become an angel investor and now a venture founder who's just focused on helping startups and really just creating brands and experiences and really just combining everything. This was really an extremely fun episode. And given how gangster this guy is, like when you look at, when you just look at the kind of journey he's been through, um, we just couldn't cover the full story. I, I felt that we definitely would need to do a follow-up in the near future. And, you know, if Larry's down, I definitely don't want to dig deeper into his current ventures and more about what he's doing. But until then, I think you will definitely have a complete earful listening to his really fascinating journey into where he got to where he is now. So without further ado, please enjoy my chat with Larry Lau. Hey everyone, welcome back to Accounted For. Today on the podcast, we have Larry Lau. Hey Larry, thanks for coming to the podcast. Thanks Daniel, thanks for having me. Yeah, uh, Larry here is the founder of 88 Ventures. And so Larry, for our audience members, can you tell us a little more about 88 Ventures, where you guys really predominantly based out of and what you really do there? Yeah, absolutely. So 88 Ventures is a uh, venture studio. Essentially, what we do is we invest into early stage companies by providing software services in lieu of capital. So in some ways, we kind of look at it as 
Uh, we're an alternative investment vehicle, similar to uh, early stage pre-seed venture capital firm. So what happens is uh, there are a lot of individuals with lots of great ideas, but they struggle with the technology piece. <clears throat> For example, someone may uh, come up with an idea and then they'll find like a, uh, a co-founder. It could be a neighbor, it could be a friend or some type of relative, but that individual may not necessarily have the expertise to be able to build a commercially viable software platform. Um, the other challenge is someone may have some capital and they'll hire an agency, but those agencies are looking to do more fee-for-service. So they don't necessarily have the, the entrepreneur or the startup in mind or their best interest in mind. So if Daniel, you said you wanted to build a product as an agency, for the most part, they would just say, okay, we'll build that. They don't really think about, is this uh, a critical uh, feature for your MVP? What are the use cases, business cases? Use, if you said, I want all these bells and whistles, they'd be happy to quote you and charge you for that. So essentially our model is we're serving, we're acting as more of the uh, CTO and, and really acting as a co-founder for these early stage companies. So um, not only are we responsible for building the actual platform and the product, but we also challenge the entrepreneurs in, in terms of understanding what is, why do we need this feature? Uh, how critical is it? Can this be delayed? Or we need to actually change the flow or we actually need to better understand the customer before we actually build out a, a and invest all this time to build out a certain feature or or we need to adjust the workflow before we actually go through with it. So uh, our model is unique in the sense that uh, these early stage companies that would have raised money and uh, they're raising money and they would be giving up their a piece of their company or whatever it is, they still have to hire or, or manage the team and hopefully build a product that will actually work. So we come in, we're essentially eliminating that whole process where uh, someone may have a valid, uh, valid, validated idea, but what we can do is work with them and, and build out a, an MVP or a early commercial version. And then from there, we can help them and be part of that process to help them scale. One of the key things that people ask us is, um, like, what does it look like after you build the product? So uh, even from the conversation that I had earlier today with a VC firm was um, they were curious because as a VC, they wouldn't actually want to invest in the company where we uh, were on their cap table. A third-party agency will had, would have anywhere between 20 to 40% equity because they don't want that to be outsourced. But our position in, our positioning on that is that we actually are more of a co-founder. So this is what I, said, I mentioned earlier. So for us, we're helping build a platform. We can help them uh, get some early stage scale, maybe get them to... Twenty, thirty thousand dollars monthly recurring revenue, but other other software companies would actually have to, in many cases, replatform because they can't sustain the growth. But what we can do is we can essentially build a product from the get go that can actually uh, get to twenty, thirty thousand dollars in in MRR. But we can also still use that same platform to scale to a hundred thousand dollars, just because we're using best practices. Uh, we're using we're not creating like. Uh, like all this ugly code, like we have a team of like senior developers uh, based in London, Ontario. So that's where our, our, our development office is based. Um, we're able to build commercially viable products that are actually really good. Yeah. yeah. It, that And, you know, I, I feel like some, it depends on, I guess, my listeners, but my, my initial thought was, you know, twenty thirty thousand $30,000 in MMR, MMR, MRR, that's not a small number. Mm-hmm. Like it's, um, 
you know, there are plenty of small businesses out there that may not even make that kind of money. And do, so from your experience, do you find that like certain entrepreneurs, like they don't want to go past that? Like, and is, or is that kind of a criteria though of like, do you only take on entrepreneurs that want to exceed that completely and then take it to like the next level where it's like hundreds of thousands or even millions in yeah. MRR? Uh, I would say that uh, if a startup is able to exceed about $10,000 a month of recurring revenue, that's a, the first indication that they have some validation. Um, typically, the companies that we would be interested in looking at would be a company that uh, may not necessarily have $10,000 a month of recurring revenue, but they have some level of, of consistent like validation. So one of our recent investments, they were doing about uh, four to five thousand dollars when we first started working with them uh, we're now in our beta phase of the platform that we invested in developed for them and now their monthly recurring revenue has has grown to about 15k wow um, and that's just a start like if you're looking at any type of like venture math startup uh, you're looking at like crazy like like hundreds of thousand dollars of monthly recurring revenue <clears throat> but even then like a lot of the early stage companies if they're able to get to Twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars. That's when they're going to gain interest from uh, seed or pre-seed or seed stage institutional investors. Yeah, and and so then it seems like when you um, decide to take an entrepreneur, you expect them to have revenue already. So is that because you said you come in kind of as like a CTO uh, mm-hmm. role? Does that mean that the entrepreneur would already have found a way to at least create some kind of? I guess technology-based product, and then you refine it or like completely rejig it, or how does that work? There's there's different scenarios. Okay. So uh, <clears throat> one of them could be that, for example, the company that I was just talking about, they have they they made it perceived as they are a software platform, but they've been actually operating the whole business entirely manually. So essentially, this company is called Maestro, um, and it's a uh, for easy for the for being uh, referencing like the, what can I want? How do I want to describe this? Uh, for lack of a better reference, we'll use that. We'll 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 ref, we'll say that it's the Uber for music teachers. Got it. Uh, essentially, as a parent, if you wanted to find a music teacher, <clears throat> you're gonna have to go to Craigslist. You're gonna have to go to Kijiji, and then there's always like this scheduling coordination. There's a payment side that's kind of awkward sometimes. Um, essentially, Maestro is able to eliminate that whole process, and we're able to um, match make uh, for parents that are looking for teachers for their kids. Um, it's not a open directory type of uh, platform, <clears throat> so parents aren't able to say, "I'm in London or Toronto, and I want this specific teacher." You actually put in the criteria, you put in the availability, you you put in uh, what are you trying to learn or what you're trying to gain out of it? And then based on our algorithm, we have all this different metadata and different data points. We're going to provide three uh, options for you based on the criteria that you've set. And then we'll also, on our end, also consider where are the reviews or are the ratings. So good teachers are actually incentivized to uh, because as they're, uh, they're teaching more students, they get strong reviews, they're going to be populated and displayed more often than other people that wouldn't be. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, no, that, that makes total sense. Um, uh, and so then how many companies do you have on in your I guess, venture studio mm-hmm. right now? So we have 
two products are actually launched and we are working on uh, two separate other individual products. So most recently, um, one of the challenges that we've been facing for ADA is <clears throat> entrepreneurs love our, love our model. Every, a lot of people that I've talked to, they, said, they would say to me, I wish I knew about you six months ago or one year ago because they just started building their product or they had to replatform and they raised money and then they had to hire their own team or had, they had to outsource it. For um, The challenge that we've had is, uh, or I don't want to say challenge, but the, the obstacle that I've been facing is when we're talking to uh, potential investors or, or uh, VCs that that we're interested in working with to potentially create a larger fund so that we can just go crazy and invest into like 20, 30 different companies. It is very labor intensive for, uh, compared to traditional venture capital. Um, a VC might see an opportunity if it's if they focus on pre-seed, they like the entrepreneur, they like the idea, there's market fit, it's defensible, they just write a check. Our model is we actually have to do that same process, but now we also are responsible for building the product. So just from that, uh, that main difference, it's very labor intensive for us, both in mentoring the entrepreneur, as well as uh, understanding like, what is the product and how do we build it versus, oh, here's some money, like talk to us in 90 days. So that's been one of the first obstacles that we've been facing that uh, now I can understand why this model doesn't really exist, but we're uh, willing to take on that challenge. Um, but so that's that's the first challenge that we face, and then the other second challenge that we're facing is when we're trying to have conversations with uh, investors and, and VCs about potentially raising like our own individual fund, or uh, there are different vehicles or, or models where we can uh, get capital injection to accelerate this. They love the model, but the because we only have two companies that we invest into, like we're pretty early uh, early stage. We're, I guess we're considered a startup that invests and builds startups, <laughs> right? So there's a lot of complexities and, and challenges there. So um, one of the things that we're kind of waiting for is waiting for our companies to mature so that we can essentially demonstrate that we have a track record and portfolio of companies that we've built and are also successful. Like we, for me personally, maybe I'm a bit biased, but the, the companies that we have are doing very well, but it does take time for those companies to mature and then increase their monthly recurring revenue. And then they also need to go uh, raise money. So until they actually raise money at X valuation, ADE doesn't really have anything that's tangible to say our portfolio companies were able to successfully raise X value in subsequent rounds after we built and, and helped them. So that's um, one of the larger obstacles that we've been facing is not so much can our companies get there? But it's literally just a matter of waiting for our companies to mature so that we can essentially be part of that process. So one of the key things that we've been able to do is actually uh, invest and build our own internal products. So when we invest into companies, there are also inherent challenges where we're working with a, a founder or a founding team. And there are, there are uh, not so much challenges, but Essentially, if we wanted to move fast, we can move fast, but then we're also the bottleneck would be based on the team. Uh, we may have ideas or recommendations, but again, we're kind of making those decisions with 
like with the with the entrepreneurs and all that kind of stuff. So for us as well as like when we're investing into a lot of these early stage companies, a lot of them aren't super innovative. Uh, what I mean by that is uh, they're they may have found a certain market and they may have found a niche niche solution, but it's not anything like super crazy. So it's easy for us to build those products, but because for me personally, I we have such a strong technical team. I've been really challenging our model uh, recently in terms of are we uh, are we building the most uh, emerging product, most innovative product? Um, yes, we can create create niche solutions and niche products, but are we really uh, riding the the wave of certain certain trending like? Uh, Technologies, for example, uh, cannabis, but that's not really that's not really technology. But uh, blockchain, uh, machine learning, um, there's like privacy is like a huge thing because of all the stuff that's been going on in social media. So, are we building products or, or, or companies that are fitting within those trends and those hypes where there's generate we're generating a lot of attention? So, most recently, um, what we've been focusing on. Is building our own internal products while we're waiting for our 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 two existing launches and our two other companies that we've invested or we've committed to. Uh, while we're waiting for them to mature, we've also allow allocated a lot of our attention and resources to building uh, products and solutions in the automatic speech recognition space. Gotcha. Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah. That's that's a lot of stuff. That's a. Uh, but at at the same time, I think it's kind of suiting because. You know, I, I was I was counting a bit of the math um, when I was looking through your LinkedIn profile, and I counted you've practically been an entrepreneur yourself for close to ten years now, mm-hmm. running different kinds of companies, and it's also I guess somewhat fitting that you need it. And I'm sure people who who are familiar with venture capital firms also know that yeah, most venture capitalists are people who have founded companies because they can empathize and they also understand it. Mm-hmm. And so you started your entrepreneurial journey in the digital marketing space despite running a, a studio right now that focuses on the technical yeah. and CTO side. But I think the if I were to take the kind of move the clock back further, um, you talked when we first met, you mentioned how you were born and raised in London, Ontario. And your initial thought or I guess even dream was to to go to med school and yeah. be a doctor. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't know. There is that, I think, common uh, stereotype slash bias, quote unquote, that, you know, if you're from a Asian background that you, your parents want you to be a doctor or something. Was that the kind of uh, pressure that you had? Or did you have some other reasons why you just had this dream of being and going to med school when you're in high school? Um, I think in uh, high school, like I, I, I love sports. So one of the things that I was very passionate about was kinesiology and sports medicine. So uh, Kobe Bryant, you're turning meniscus, like no problem, like I'll stitch it back together. Um, so I ended up uh, going to Western for kinesiology, but first year university just, just absolutely kicked my butt. So my parents actually never thought that I would be able to go to med school. So really? very different from like the uh, stereotypical pressure. Uh, my parents thought, oh, like if you want to try it, like, Go ahead, but after first year, I proved them right. <laughs> um, yeah, I think in high school I was able to get good grades and play sports, and uh, I but I never really had the the academic d- 
discipline to study and study effectively. So after first year, I uh, I was very close to getting kicked out of university because I was I had such terrible grades. Was that um, just because you were partying too hard because you were in Western? No, absolutely not. So I li- I was living off campus and living at home as well. So uh, if I was to, it took me like an hour just to bus to school. Um, and if it was like, if I had a car, it would have been like 20 minutes. But just transportation in London is not the best. Um, probably much like anywhere else, like Toronto and like the commutes and stuff is not ideal. Um, so no, it, I wish I could say that and have like, and say that I had a great time while I got kicked out or almost got kicked out, but that was not the case. Yeah, and, and so after King's College, you ended up switching into psychology. I, yeah. It's it's funny, though, because um, I don't know if I told you this when we first met, but uh, you know that I graduated in accounting in Waterloo, but um, in, my, in my first year, I was in a program that I had no business being in because I had no business background. Like, I had no idea what accounting even was. I just went in because it, it resembled business. Like, I... Uh, I picked accounting because I wanted to be an engineer and I had all these, I got accepted into engineering, but I just made a last minute switch effort. And so first year accounting was kicking my ass at that point. And I looked to kinesiology. I was actually going to transfer into kinesiology. Like I had my application all ready to just transition over, but I didn't end up doing it. Um, but yeah, like I, cause I was so into powerlifting and I thought, yeah, like maybe kinesiology is like my thing, but um, it, it's just funny that you went into kinesiology with that kind of sports mindset mm-hmm. though. And so then you, you went to psychology, but I think what was also very interesting was um, you told me how you started creating websites when you were like 12 years old. <laughs> and yeah. you, like you made like a Pokemon website that yeah. you even got partnered with like IGN with like yeah. the International Gaming Network. Yeah. Were, were you like always fascinated in like technology and stuff as a child? Like what, what made you like create that kind of website? Um, I think in some ways I was always like very curious and I actually know that's I'm I'm I'm. I've always been curious and I still am curious now with uh, different businesses and different technologies and reading about different things. Like I just love to learn. Um, I think when I was 12, I was trying to learn, uh, like my family just got like our first computer and I was trying to fiddle around with it. And I came across Angel Fire, GeoCities and uh, there's like Asian Avenue or something like that. But uh, you essentially were able to learn, like I was able to learn basic ways to code. <clears throat> and then just because the internet was accessible, I was trying to self-teach myself like how to build a website. So by no means was I like an incredible developer or a coder, but I was able to teach myself basic HTML. And then I started learning about tables and then that I could actually structure like a decent looking website. So that was probably when I was like 11. And then I built this Pokemon website, was, which was essentially uh, like different information and walkthroughs and, and, and tips for Pokemon, like the game. And then how I got really lucky was I had individuals from different countries that wanted to send me content. So someone from Japan would, would message me and say, oh, I just went to uh, E3 and I t- took this photo of like this new game or this new screenshot of uh, Pokemon Silver that like existed, but like in in the states there was only red and blue. So I was like, okay, cool. Like I'll, I'll post that, and then someone from Germany will have like some type of Pokemon and N- Nintendo event, and they're they're like, oh, I want to share this with you. So I stumbled across user generated content at a very early stage. Yeah, like you're 13 or something. And you're yeah. managing like a platform. Yeah, That's crazy. Yeah. So 
uh, I was able to get all this user ge user generated content and start publishing that. And that was how I was able to build up a pretty reputable website. So I think at the, the peak, I was the fifth largest website like in the world. And then when I uh, I was about 14, 15, I was about uh, I was going to high school and and I didn't really have the passion for uh, maintaining a Pokemon website. Now I kick myself for not keeping it. Um, but I think um, going back to certain stereotypes, like you watch American movies and uh, like the the nerdy Asian dude would get beat up and put in lockers. So I that actually unfortunately was one of the reasons why I didn't want to keep it. So I uh, and also at the same time, um, because I'm not super technical, um, managing the server side and the DevOps was actually quite challenging. So at the time, uh, like almost 20 years ago, bandwidth was extremely expensive. Um, at one point, it cost my it cost me about a hundred over a hundred dollars US to keep my site up for an hour in wow. terms of like the amount of traffic and all that stuff. So um, being able to scale the website was also very challenging. Um, so by the time that I got to that point, I was able to find a, a provider that uh, would help me host the website if I put up their ads. And then they said that we I was growing too much and growing too fast that they wouldn't be able to accommodate our growth. So then they made an introduction to this company that uh, called UGO, which was purchased by IGN. So they essentially had all these like media websites and they would uh, essentially take over our, our site and help or take over the ads and then help scale it. And then I was able to get like a 1% like revenue share. So uh, I got rid of the site uh, and they gave me like a 1% revenue share, which equated to $150 to $200 US like every month. So when I look back on it, they were making like 20 grand off of me a month. So if I had the knowledge and the the foresight, like I would I would have been able to have my first quote unquote exit when I was fourteen. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like I, in, in case someone from IGN is listening, I don't want to talk any smack about the company, but <laughs> oh man, I got fourteen years got totally taken advantage of by some like yeah. massive conglomerate for yeah. sure. And my mom had to sign the contract because I wasn't old enough. Man, that's yeah. crazy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And so, yeah, you're such a, you're an entrepreneur at such a young age. And so it's funny too, because uh, like you mentioned how you practically, you know, never really had like a full-time job in like the corporate world because like after graduation or it might've been like even during, during when you were in school, like you started your own digital marketing agency. Mm -hmm. So you end up going back to helping people like create websites and even like now growing it. How did that um, for you like start again? Like did, was there some kind of click where you just realized as you were getting older that, yeah, I have the skill, but nobody else does or people are just like not utilizing the problem like what happened to you yeah i <clears throat> it was towards the end of university where um uh, my first business partner uh who i also went to high school with we were both working at uh at uh, td canon trust so that would be like the closest i've ever had in terms of a corporate position but we were working part-time as a teller and essentially business owners would come to us and say oh like larry like you're super young do you know how to build a website just a client? Yeah, clients. And we, I was essentially soliciting while working at TD Can Trust. Um, so uh, our, my managers weren't very happy with that, but they also really loved me. So uh, they kind of 
it was it was a it was a love hate relationship. Yeah, but you you know you're making the clients sticky, right? They're co- probably coming back to the TV branch just to talk to you more. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So we did a few uh, websites like cash cash deals, but we were building a website like using Notepad, like it's not even Dreamweaver. Like we were hard coding websites, but we were charging like three hundred dollars, five hundred dollars. So how I started the marketing company was we realized that we're not developers and we're not going to be uh, coders and we're not going to be good at that. At the time, there was a lot of web, pure web development companies and there were also branding agencies. Digital marketing at that time was considered black magic, like voodoo, like what is SEO and Google AdWords. Yeah, what, what year was this? Uh, this was about 2011, 2012. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. So people were already doing Google AdWords for years. Like, uh, like by the late 1990s, like, the really, really progressive, like early adopters, they were already killing it. Um, but e-commerce and everything was also not nearly as prominent. But essentially, it was like super new. Uh, and we decided that, okay, we found an opportunity where agencies, traditional agencies don't have the expertise for digital marketing. And then web development companies don't have that expertise. So we're going to build a marketing agency specializing in uh, uh paid advertising, and then uh, search engine optimization. So that's how we got started, and we started working with local smaller businesses, but it was very hard at the beginning. So um, my family, uh, like I had a very modest upbringing. It's not like my family, my parents had connections, and they were able to refer clients. Like um, Everything that I've been able to do from a business side has been uh, established and like developed from like myself. And um, I would say that I was inherently... Uh, introverted, but then I had to go out and do business deals, all types of stuff that I was never comfortable with. But uh, at the beginning, it was very challenging. We were working with like local businesses, and uh, people were very hesitant to give us any money to like manage their ads. They're like, "Oh, like you're some punk kid, and what is this digital marketing, online SEO stuff?" So it took us a while to really uh, uh, build traction. Um, we were doing projects for free. We we're doing projects for like fractions of what our time was actually worth but we had to build a reputation and build a portfolio like there's one business where it's a prominent restaurant in in london um we built them a site and did digital marketing for them and we got paid with gift cards but this individual was super uh super uh, well known well respected so as we got into other meetings we would say oh we worked with uh so and so and we built this website and then like oh i'm a big fan of them like i know them personally and that also helped us get some like validation and credibility. So it just, it took a really long time. I eventually, because digital marketing is so new, um, I was able to uh, teach at financial college, teaching like a, uh, like a one day Google AdWords course. And then that also allowed me to go to Western University and teach in their graduate marketing program. So I created the first digital marketing focus uh, uh, curriculum for their graduate uh, marketing program. So again, being able to uh, be an instructor and teach at that level also added credibility for a company. So eventually we were able to work with uh, some some pretty well-known brands, both locally and also at a national level. Yeah, like, uh, and it seems like, I think um, you first started as like Lala Digital, uh, was was it Lala like Digital Group? And then um, that was like like a year and a half and then you transformed it into like a bigger company called like Atmos over time, which you ran for like close to six years. Yeah, so Lala Digital is a funny story. So uh, uh, my business partner and I, we 
weren't able to get a lot of work in locally. Uh, in, like in local, in, like London. in Canada and in London. Yeah, yeah. So for us to gain some uh, traction and get experience, we went on like freelance.com and try to offer our services to different businesses. So there was one individual uh, from Dallas, uh, and he came across us, and we're not from like uh, somewhere in Asia or like India, because um, so there's that's where there's a lot of outsourced uh, contractors. So there, he's like, oh, you're, you guys are Canadian and you guys are super cheap. So <clears throat> I'll, I'll, I'll consider working with you guys. <clears throat> so we did like one project and then we were able to connect and, and build a relationship with him. So Lala Digital was actually our, our company that we used to service all these American clients. And then we did that for like a, a little bit about over a year simultaneously as we're trying to grow Atmos. So then uh, when we became more legitimate, we actually started working with this agency in Dallas uh, as under the Atmos brand. And then they were selling contracts that they would outsource to us. So it was actually a really fun and, and uh, really great experience. I was incredibly, great, incredibly grateful for it. So yeah, at one point Atmos, uh, I would say when we were very early stage, probably half of our revenue came from like Dallas, Fort Worth area. So it's, it's really random, but I'm actually very familiar with Dallas Fort Worth because I've had the opportunity to travel there uh, and understanding like the markets and like the different pockets of like uh, like San Antonio, Austin, and like there's like all these all these like Texas language that it's it's wow. Yeah. Uh, and you're wearing a flannel shirt right now, so I was gonna say it's kind of fitting. <laughs> yes. But um, wow, so that that's very surprising because when you know when you're talking that you're sourcing local businesses and stuff, I was thinking. Huh, London, Ontario must have a thriving small business environment, but it's okay. I'm kind of getting the bigger picture now that you had like a big client base also in like the U.S. as well. Yeah, because just in in the states, um, I saw I was able to see this like firsthand. They're way more aggressive. Uh, I used to use this analogy where uh, if we had a great idea and we were in the states uh, and we proposed it to John, John would be like, "How much is it going to cost?" Okay, cool. Let's try that. In Canada. Like digital marketing when we're trying to tell someone like no one else is doing this is like entirely like blue ocean they're like let me know when someone else joe does it. is doing it and then i'll consider doing it i think there's still some of that mentality here uh in canada um not nearly as as bad as it was before so uh yeah digital marketing was way more prominent like a lot of the a lot of the companies that we were working with uh back in like in dallas fort worth Two or three years later, we would see those trends or those type of companies show up in, in Canada. So it was really interesting to be able to see how the American market worked versus the Canadian market. Mm -hmm. And But when you're first starting out, though, you know, like, uh, you know, once you get that market validation, and I think at that point, then you know what you're doing works. But in the beginning, when you said how you know, you're now transitioning from being solic you know, teller soliciting business to now, okay, we're graduated do we build this as a company like how long are we going to do this for with all these people saying no because canadians just don't get it like mm -hmm. um what was that process like how how did you guys get the i guess confidence or any kind of like certainty that or conviction i'll say that this is going to be our company this is what we're going to do and we're not going to go find some corporate job or and like all that like what was that process like in the first like year year and a half 
Um, I would say that um, we, both my business partner and I, we had the luxury of just being recent graduates and being able to live at home. So not having mortgages or major expenses, we were able to kind of take this risk and, and we both decided that, hey, we'll try this out and see where it goes. So originally we started in uh, working out of his basement uh, at his mom's place and um, that was fun, but not very productive. Like he had an Xbox and like, I don't know, like 11 a.m. We're like, hey, you want to play like a quick game of Halo? And then there's like a mini putt and we're like challenging each other. But we also decided that we needed to be more legitimate, um, especially when we were facing a lot of uh, uh, a lot of uh, I guess obstacles to be able to secure clients. So we at that point uh, we were probably doing like making a few thousand dollars in revenue, um, but by no means like and that that wasn't like a lot of money. Like it was probably like a few thousand dollars after like a couple months, which is. Not a lot. Um, but what we realized was maybe we need to be more legitimate. So we decided that we were going to get our first office in downtown London, Ontario. And just how many months into starting the business? I, oh, That's a good question. I think we were probably... So we started in May. And then I think we moved in the office around November of 2011. So maybe like four or five months. And we got a really, really small office. Like I think it was 400 square feet, if not less. And we had no recurring revenue. We had our, our revenue and everything uh, was, was going up and down. And we just decided that, hey, if we're going to have a space and we're going to have an office, then we have to be able to commit and pay for this. So, pressure's on, yeah. Yeah, pressure's on. So we uh, we built all our own furniture. Uh, like, it was to- probably totally against, like, the lease agreement. Um, and, yeah, that was a lot of, that was a lot of fun and have lots of great memories probably that was the one of the the best times in terms of startups like i've been able to do a lot of different things a lot of cool things but i think that those those, that period was probably one of the things i cherish the most because not having coming from a business background like everything i learned now like i do angel investing we have like a complex venture model with 88 everything that i've had to do in terms of corporate legal hr leadership technical has literally been learn from scratch and i would say those were the hardest years um but also the funnest is there um is there a specific kind of moment where you think it kind of comes comes to mind to you frequently as oh this was a really hard time like this was a you know big obstacle and like i guess i'm trying to i'm trying to ask what was like the kind of big biggest obstacle that kind of came to mind at that point where you thought Man, if I can get over this, then everything else is going to be smooth sailing. Like I can, But I don't know if I can get over this. I think it's all relative. Yeah. Because um, when we first started, we we committed to the small lease, but we had maybe $1,000 in our bank account. And then we're like, oh, we have to pay this lease. That's like $700 a month or something like that. So um, at that time, like we're like, oh, shit, like we have to pay for this. And then... Uh, we're worrying about like hundreds of dollars but then as we grew and then we hired employees and then we're like oh crap like we have to pay for employees but we don't pay ourselves and then and then you you deal with certain issues so I think it's um, from doing this for the last like nine years I think uh, challenges and everything are always relative so at that time it seems like really hard because it's new or um, for the most part like 
yeah, if it's, it's a, if it's a new challenge, it seems hard at that at that point. But three or six months later, and you think back on it, and you're like, why did I even stress out about that, right? Um, I think it's all relative, and I think as long as you're willing to challenge and willing like willing to challenge yourself and willing to learn, then those situations happen. But I've learned that that's just part of the part of part of entrepreneurship. So I have uh, someone said to me like really good like an amazing quote. Uh, the the journey is the destination, or yeah, the. Hmm, I think I may have butchered this. I I, I think I don't know what quote you're referring to, but yeah, I think it might go a little different way. But I I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, what is it? It's it's not the destination; it's the journey. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's but I don't think that's is not. The, I not don't that think one? that's yeah. Okay. It's it, but it's along those lines. Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> I have a reputation of butchering uh, idioms. <laughs> <laughs> no, no worries. I'm, I'm sure our audience kind of understands it. Like the focus is on the journey, yeah. and yeah, like, and but it's it's funny. Like you kind of like brushed over this really quickly, but you know, we went from can't even pay the lease mm-hmm. to oh yeah, and then we hired people. <laughs> yeah. So I guess you started growing growing rapidly. Then like was that was that the period when you figured out this whole Fort Dallas worth like. Um, like in Dallas, like Fort Worth, like this whole situation where you realize this is a huge pool of companies that need help and that's when you decide to scale up? Uh, we we definitely needed to hire because we were getting more clients in, in from Dallas-Fort Worth than in an area. But we also were concerned about being too reliant on being an outsourced company because mm. all they could do is bring it in-house or hire someone else. And then if we were to hire someone, then uh, then we're really at risk of that. But we did. I wouldn't say we were growing rapidly. I think in our first, in our first year, we hired two employees. Um, but both my business partner and I, we were focused on paying them and then, and not paying ourselves. Um, I think it was in the second full year of us running this business, we had I think four employees, four or five employees, and then we were able to kind of pay ourselves like a reasonable, like very extremely modest salary or income um like we had no consistency it's kind of like oh we haven't paid ourselves in four months like maybe we sh- we have some extra money in the bank we'll like we'll we'll cut a check for ourselves right yeah like it's, it's nothing like a bi- <clears throat> bi-weekly paycheck at all no yeah, there's yeah. no and and when i realized that i was like your my employees are getting paid bi-weekly there's like cspp and ei i was like what is this bullshit um but it wasn't until i would say the third year into this where we, we started really feeling confident and, and comfortable with the business because um, as we uh, were, like I was personally like teaching, um, we were uh, guest speaking at multiple events, we were running workshops, like we became the player in in our city for uh, being young guys, super hardworking, like we had a great reputation. So we were able to attract big projects. So it wasn't like, the third and fourth year were um, like the best best years. So yeah. we won business of the year in London, Ontario. Uh, we were di- getting different accolades. Like we we're winning projects that we probably shouldn't have been winning. So that that was that was a lot of fun. And then you know you went further and you started. Uh, I think you guys merged with Northern Commerce. Uh, we merged with a local uh, software development shop, and because we we did have two developers, but they're focused on more like building brochure websites so we merged with a, a software um, a, a software company so that we could actually build more complex products um, so we 
we merged and then became Northern Commerce. So then with, uh, I think at the time there was 20 like hardcore developers, like a couple engineers. Then we were able to enter like software as a service or build up custom modules for basic websites, but have like really cool uh, uh, features where like, like maybe like something like geolocation, like on a, on a traditional like WordPress website, um, because we're building uh, websites for companies that have multiple locations, it wouldn't necessarily, like we didn't have the capabilities to build a geolocator. But because now we have a software team, then we're able to build a geolocator for your closest franchise or your closest location. So uh, uh, that essentially uh, became the, uh, the inception of Northern Commerce. So then we were able to focus on enterprise e-commerce development and then also because we were the marketing side, we were able to service uh, these uh, very large uh, direct-to-consumer or business-to-business uh, uh, e-commerce platforms. Okay, now 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 I'm seeing where like the whole technical side came in for ADA Ventures. Where okay, you, you did see that when you were like, yeah. building up yeah. Northern Commerce. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. And and so how how big um, did was Northern Commerce? Um, like up to the point that you left the company? Uh, so I left the company about uh, just over two years ago. And at the time, I th- we were about 45 uh, full-time employees from wow. developers, uh, marketers, designers. Yeah. And how, how much in revenue were you guys doing around that time? If, if you can't share, that's totally cool. Yeah, I don't think I can share that. Okay, yeah, no problem. Um, but definitely like multi, multi-million. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, that, that's I think good that's enough. The, I think yeah. that's can assume that people, yeah. Yeah, that's good enough, yeah, yeah. Um, that gives definitely like a, I think a range of okay yeah, got yeah. it. And so then, what made you leave though? Um, you know, it's a company that you founded, and you know it's where one of your fondest memories are of growing that marketing company. But what made you want to transition out now, grow in commerce, and actually go back to school? And you end up going doing a executive MBA at Ivy. Yeah, um, I think uh, there were a few different reasons for it. I think. Um, one of the things was that I learned from that whole process was, uh, so I would say that there are a few different reasons um, for why uh, I left the company. So one of them was uh, when we merged with the the software uh, software uh, development company, um, we were both very fast growing. Uh, we were both young, but I never. Uh, I didn't really understand like what merging meant. Uh, had I kind of gone back on this, like maybe maybe I would have done something different. Um, but essentially, as we were able to uh, work and work more closely, there were uh, differences in terms of like business direction or different things that we would be wanting uh, wanting to do. So me being uh, one of two founders, there were certain responsibilities that I was able to uh, take on. But as we merged, then those some of those uh, some of those responsibilities and things I enjoyed were no longer like under my like wheelhouse. Mm. So as we had a bigger machine and we're doing like one of my focuses on more business development, and um, it just it was it became in some ways like uh, very uh, stale, uh, especially when we're doing uh, enterprise e-commerce sales. The business life cycle, uh, the, the the sales cycle could be anywhere between like twelve months to like two years. Wow! So as we were uh, growing and doing well, I had started investing into other early stage companies, and I had 
way higher enjoyment and I was more excited working on these companies where I was able to help build them and have a larger influence and it was exciting to see where they're going. Um, so with, uh, with, the, with, with Northern, it was challenging because we had this larger machine. The things that I was enjoying that I wanted to do weren't really part of my responsibility anymore. So uh, that would be like, those were like the, the, the big reasons. Um, I really wanted to focus on like building products, but we were uh, a, an agency and we're doing a lot of fee for service. So again, like there's not the excitement where we can actually bring that in-house, right? So um, for a um, uh, like variety of reasons that I felt that it was, it was uh, time to leave. And then at the same time, I was also trying to think like, okay, I have all this experience, um, but I don't have a formal business background. Um, something that really interests me is venture capital or uh, maybe some level of like investment banking or corporate development. So because I don't have like a, a very good uh, business education, um, I decided that I, I would uh, apply and try to do my executive MBA just to round myself out. Um, and I was able to, and I was fortunate to uh, get in at, at Ivy Business School and complete the program and graduated last fall. Um, yeah. Oh, so you, you ran 88 Ventures while you were in your MBA? Yeah. Oh. I was, uh, so when I left uh, Northern Commerce, um, I always had this kind of idea in terms of investing into different companies uh, and creating like a machine that was able to do that. So that essentially was the creation of 88 Ventures. So at that early, like one of the, one of the things about 88 that uh, we haven't been able to touch on is um, we have a very unique way of investing into different companies. So early stage products, um, the, a lot of these companies have the same, have a lot of the same features. For example, every software product needs to be, uh, needs to be able to allow user registration, login, payment processing, email notifications. When an individual team is trying to build a product, they're building this, the company from the ground now. So they're running to all the same issues. They're trying to build like the login module from scratch. What we've been able to do at 88 is, um, uh, what we've been able to do at 88 is we've been, uh, we created a, a framework that allows us to now uh, build software products much more quickly. So certain features like user management, payment processing, um, something that would have taken 20 or 30 hours to do from scratch, we created modules that allows us to reuse and repurpose them in, into multiple products. So something that could take X amount of hours will take us like 20, 30 minutes to implement. So when we're looking at different companies that we're uh, building or investing into, um, let's just say it's gonna cost, or it's gonna take a thousand hours, we probably have like three, three, 400 hours of that, of that scope already completed. So now we have the advantage of being able to bring our products to market much more quickly. And then for, from our standpoint, we're essentially able to create that value because something that would have taken X amount of hours, we're, we're, able, to, uh, we're able to eliminate that. Eliminate that. So in some ways, we're able to offer uh, a better value for our investors because when we're providing, when we're investing into the companies, we're providing it at uh, the, the market competitive rate, a competitive market rate. So when we say we're gonna invest $100,000 of services, that's not $100,000 in equivalent wages. It's $100,000 if you were to get that quoted from a third-party agency, 
But for us, for our investors, uh, and even as 88, our actual uh, cash output for that investment would maybe be $50,000. Let's just say that if we were a fee-for-service and we had 50% margin, that's how we're looking at our investments, right? So for our investment thesis for, for 88 is, okay, we're going to provide $100,000 of, of, of in-kind services, and our cost is whatever fraction of that. But as the company is able to increase value in terms of their valuations, then our, our cost wasn't 100K, but it's realized at 100K. But if they're able to now raise, let's just say, uh, at a $2 million valuation, which is relatively low for a pre-seed or C-stage company, um, on paper, our $50,000 investment now is maybe equivalent to 500K if we had like 25% equity, right? So on paper, we're able to 10x our original investment. Oh, I see. Okay. Right? Yeah, but yeah, as, yeah. A, as an angel investor, if you wanted to invest, that's $100,000 that you had put out. We're actually able to increase the value of the capital that we use by, by turning capital into services. Hmm. And, and so then right now for 88 Ventures, is it, is it is the venture studio also funded by other investors or is it mainly truly funded by um, your own money? So for the first year and a half, it was primarily funded by myself uh, and then also by uh, a few different co- uh, government grants that we were able to get. And then uh, last year, uh, towards the end of last year, I was trying to create this uh, uh, special purpose vehicle that we were going to use to invest into a select few companies. But over time, as I realized that um, creating an SPV to invest into these different companies became um, was not ideal for a, a number of reasons. So again, one of them is we're, we're having to con- continue to uh, mentor different pro- uh, mentor the entrepreneurs. We're having to uh, build different features, retooling features, um, it, it wasn't as cl- it wasn't as clean as hey we're going to provide a hundred thousand dollars in services. So we actually uh, the companies that we invested into opposed to just cutting them off uh, of let's just say uh, Maestro for example. Instead of saying hey we can't help you anymore because we've already committed to your fully committed to your hundred k, we I realized that we're setting ourselves up for failure because we aren't providing them um, that extra. Like support, or they need that extra feature, but it's out of scope. So, it, when I created the SPV, it was very like, okay, we're always only going to commit to 100k per company, and that's it. And then, good luck. Let's see like where it goes. And um, for a number of reasons that uh, that we've encountered, it, it actually doesn't make a lot of sense because if we just let that company go, it it probably has a higher likelihood of failing. So we've uh, what we're looking to do is restructuring some of that investment um, uh, dollars and restructuring how um, investor those investors are are part of the eighty eight ecosystem as a whole, opposed to like an individual cohort. So that was actually very much inspired by Y Combinator in terms of investing by cohorts, but it's a lot easier to do by cash than doing services. So that's that's another like that's what I was alluding to earlier, right? So. Even like as a like we've come we've 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 encountered situations where we're working with a startup and we work with them for like two three months and then we realize that the market or something's changed and now we need to pivot. So even though we haven't done any code and any any like development, we just had to like re 
do like their plan. Oh man. Right? So when we say that we're going to invest $100,000 like even from the planning for uh, like the development queue it doesn't make any sense. So essentially what we do uh, what we're going to be doing is converting that SPV and then rolling mm-hmm. it into 88. Gotcha. But, wow. fortu- but fortunately that was with uh, a very close network of friends that uh, love what we're doing and just wanted to invest um, and so it's that's perfectly fine. But at the same time, why we, uh, what I was talking about in terms of VCs and investors that really love our model, but think, thinks that we're uh, a little bit too early to large and, and, and extract a lot of value for ourselves is the reason why we're not looking to do a significant raise. Um, so yeah. Okay. It, it's, it's honestly, I think, quite fascinating because these are like just structural and logistical issues that you just kind of you just come across trying to create this kind of investment vehicle and it you know i think if you're not familiar with this space, it just looks very simple from the outset that oh you just throw money into companies and that's just how it's going to go but mm-hmm. um there's just like there's so many just moving pieces that you're talking about that yeah. just complicate a lot of the issues yeah and we haven't like this is 88 venture we haven't even talked about like your own angel investing where like, you know you're what you're an investor in um, pulp and press juice you're an investor in myo detox um, you also have like a movie studio, like um, yeah, what's it called? Uh, McAlpine yeah. Studios, yeah. and you also a partner of like Cha Time Bubble Tea, yeah. which I guess is like also like a separate thing. Yeah, and you you mentioned how you know you got into angel investing while you were at Northern Commerce, and that kind of did spark that. Oh yeah, I missed that early stage startup stuff. Like that's actually more interesting. How did it all kind of come about? Like how did you get involved into this angel investing world to begin with? Did people come to you? and say, hey, can you help with this digital marketing? And you start just throwing them cash while you help them with digital marketing? How does it happen? Uh, there is definitely a bit of that with the marketing agency. Um, but the other the other opportunities really came from my involvement with, uh, with uh, Propel. So essentially, Western University has an entrepreneurship uh, program for students. It wasn't around when I was in school, um, but shortly after... Um, it started a, a program called Biz Inc. started, and then that evolved to Propel. So essentially, it's a program that works with student entrepreneurs that want to start companies. So uh, there are business analysts, there are uh, empl- like uh, employees that are actually hired to work with student entrepreneurs. Uh, uh, with student entrepreneurs, um, so I was fortunate enough to be able to join them as an advisor and mentor. Uh, I were I was able to. Uh, evaluate companies that would actually get um, uh, grants. So like $15,000 grants for a student to uh, work in their accelerator. I was able to judge in uh, different competitions where there was cash prizes. So that was something that I really, really, really enjoyed. And as I was able to connect with more business individuals, people that are um, working in different startups, I I was able to advise them. And just I, I was able to enter more of a uh, more of a multi, I guess, like serial entrepreneur kind of like persona as I was able to get into more more companies. So some of the investments that I've made in the beginning were very, like, very small, like a few thousand dollars, but it was really more about the individual versus, like, the actual company. And then as I became more sophisticated in terms of investing and understanding how to evaluate, how to look at companies, then... Um, and then when I was writing larger, bigger checks, then those that was like more more of a learning opportunity. So it's 
as much as I love and 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 uh, like in terms of like how much I know about startups and venture, again, it's all been self-taught and uh, yeah, it's been it's been a lot of fun. And so, how many investments have you made in total so far? Uh, in terms of like actual like cash in investments yeah um i'd probably say a dozen okay and yeah. how many are still alive all of them oh wow yeah okay uh but i have uh equity positions in a lot more companies where i've uh, joined as an advisor mm. or companies that are uh people that i know that are very established where they want me for my expertise in digital marketing and uh um, different other skills I've learned along the way in terms of, of branding and more of the tech side, then I have opportunity, like I have equity positions in those companies as more like a find, founding like like member. I'm relatively hands off. So uh, yeah, there's, I think I have an equity position in about 20 companies. Wow. And so uh, would you say that most of them come from um, inbound? Like they're just referrals that come to you and say, hey, can you come and advise my company or mm -hmm. do you constantly have like a practice of reaching out to different businesses and finding oh this company is interesting i want to invest in it yeah i think it i think it's it's been uh, pretty much all organic wow. um because as a as an individual investor it's not like i have uh like an unlimited like war chest so a lot of the companies i invest into are either uh like colleagues or friends of mine that are invested in into a company or they're starting a company and i know them individually I, I i i can trust to know that they're they have my best interest in mind or they have a good product um there's only been uh, a couple of companies where i didn't really know the 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 startup and i invested in those companies but for the most part they're they've been pretty organic wow huh. yeah yeah like i it's it's something that um, I've been very curious about to like, understand like how I can like definitely get involved in like, the angel investing space, but mm -hmm. it's it just seemed like a black box until you like get into that sphere mm -hmm. to actually generate that organic kind of traffic. Yeah, absolutely, and I think that's why I'm not actively looking for a whole bunch of companies or deals. Is it's not like I have I'm part of a venture capital firm where my sole purpose is to invest and find the highest potential companies. Mm -hmm. um, I think as an angel investor, like I, I invest in companies where I have a personal interest in that, in that, in that, in that brand, or this, it's something that I want to use or something I want to be a part of, then I've, it, it's, it's not necessarily numbers first. Um, there are companies, uh, just most recently, there was a company where uh, they're doing extremely well, they're very like profitable, they're fast growing, but it's in a really boring industry. Like I have no interest or passion for it. So then, like even though it may make financial sense, uh, I decline that hmm. only because I want to uh, be involved with companies that I'm actually excited to be a part of, right? So uh, whether right or wrong, um, as an individual private investor, um, those are things that I've kind of decided on. Um, but I, that's why I think like with 88 or maybe down the road, like I, I would really love to be, uh, part of a more like formal venture capital environment, then, then that would also be like very fun and very different. Cause like every day you're just assessing different companies or meeting with lots of great high potential entrepreneurs, but I don't do that at that velocity at this point. Yeah. 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 Oh yeah. Wow. Um, 
unfortunately, we're kind of coming to the end of the interview, so uh, I have many more questions to ask, but I'll try to yeah. just narrow it down to just um, the kind of closing questions. But I know that you are a, like a big proponent of um, building brands, like building, um, you know, you, we talked in our previous conversation about, you know, the power of like Supreme and mm-hmm. the kind of visions you have of creating companies that have like lasting impact and just mm-hmm. kind of if you say like a name like Nike just like popped into your mind like just do it things like that mm-hmm. so for you like if you were to kind of envision like a 10 year future where let's say the money and all that's taken care of what what would you like to achieve and what do you really envision uh, I think 10 years from now if like uh, if I just wanted to do what I love I would love to be able to work with social on- uh, social enterprises and social entrepreneurs I think uh like you're talking about impact and I think sustainability is like a super critical uh, uh, like issue that a lot of companies need to be more mindful of. So I would say that uh, like I want to be able to build more companies, build more brands and get involved with companies that have social purpose. Mm. Nice. Yeah. And um, if now, uh, if we were to look back and look at the, the 20 year old Larry in uh, third year Western, um, we might still be the teller then. If that Larry were to look at what you're doing right now, what do you think that Larry would think? What do you think the emotional reaction from that Larry would be? And what advice would you have like to given that Larry? Um, <clears throat> I think that's a really good question. I think uh, I used to be very, very uh, goal-oriented. So I feel as though 20-year-old Larry would actually be very disappointed in myself right now. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I think uh, I think uh, I just turned 31 and I think um, 20 year old Larry thought that he would have like private private helicopters and yachts and all that kind of stuff so I think like truthfully I think 20 year old Larry would have been very disappointed but it wasn't until like the past few years where I've uh, maybe grown and matured that I think uh, I've I still think this uh, but at a much lesser extent where um, it's it's just you just gotta enjoy the the, the ride and, and uh, take your time and be patient so I think what I would tell myself is uh, not putting that pressure and just enjoy and learn and develop because I think I I had a probably a very unhealthy balance or like lifestyle like a uh, quality of life in terms of like just working like crazy like I still do that now but like I actually enjoy the work that I'm doing um, but whereas before, even if I didn't like it, like I would just crush like 16 hour days. Wow. Right. So, uh, and I did that for a very long time and, um, c- constantly pushing and then like making certain, certain sac- sacrifices that I maybe shouldn't have made. So, um, that's probably what I would tell myself. Yeah. 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 Wow. No, that's a good one. Um, yeah, like I find, no. I, I definitely haven't um, done to extent of I believe like you would have done since I haven't been an entrepreneur for a very long time. But I can only imagine from my own experience that yeah, like the you have to crush it. But there are many times when you're just miserable. Mm-hmm. You just tell yourself to shut the fuck up and just crush it. Yeah, and I think there's definitely points where you just have to do it, right? But there were I can definitely remember different situations where uh, I had the option of not doing it, but I just chose to do it. Um, and um, yeah, it, it's just. It's just putting a lot of pressure on myself and then being much more like more real uh, materialistic and i think just as over time like whether it's being older or whatever it is i think 
um, there are certain things that I still appreciate and there's certain goals that I still want to be able to achieve, but it's it's much less vain. Yeah, yeah. no, yeah. that's a that's good advice. Thanks for sharing that. Um, and yeah, like this has been a very fun interview for me, and um, I really think our guests, our listeners, uh, would get a lot of value from like, hearing your story as well. So thanks so much for coming on the podcast and sharing your story with us. Yeah, today. this is this is so much fun, and uh, this was great, and I hope I can come back sometime. Yeah, yeah. And so if the listeners want to get in, like you know, learn more about Eighty Adventures, um, what's the site that they should go to? Uh, it's eighty eight e i g h t y number eight dot c o. Got it. Yeah. All right. Thanks a lot for coming to the podcast. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you so much. So thanks for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, please check out other episodes and don't forget to subscribe to stay up to date for the future episodes. Also, I would really appreciate it if you would leave a review on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher, whichever is applicable to you. To see past episodes, you can go to oldmandan.com slash podcasts. Also, you can sign up to my weekly newsletter on my blog, oldmandan.com slash newsletter. You can stay up to date with future podcast episodes that way. And included in the newsletter are my book reviews I write, my weekly article in the related to the domain of self-development systems, as well as seven things I learned throughout the week on being healthy, wealthy, and wise. Finally, special thanks to icons8.com for allowing me to use their music, Tiny People, on the podcast. Great. I will see you all next time. Take care.